Chapter 10 of The Radio Gunner by Alexander Forbes. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Power of Suggestion As the winter wore away, great troop convoys poured a seemingly endless stream of American soldiers into northern Europe to reinforce the armies there, worn as they were with their ceaseless vigil, holding the line but never able to push the enemy back. It was indeed a deadlock, and all the world watched in suspense. At times it was worse than a deadlock. Murad Pasha, the Turkish generalissimo, was a military genius. He kept harassing the northern lines with masterly strokes of surprise action which told heavily on the more heterogeneous, less consolidated army of the north. The length and breadth of North America, everyone was doing his bit. All industries were mobilized for war. The women knitted socks at home or worked on farms and in factories. All watched the daily press, noting with alarm each move of Murad, eagerly grasping at hope when a colossal bombardment forced the southern army back ever so little. On that battle line, all thoughts were focused and all hopes were based. The Navy, shielded from the daily press by 2,000 miles of silent ocean, was little heeded as compared with the Army. Its doings were almost unknown to the general public. At the Azores, little change of consequence occurred in the naval situation. By diligent application of the methods thus far developed, enemy submarines were from time to time found and either destroyed or damaged. But although the menace was diminished, it was always there, and the toll of merchant and supply ships continued to be heavy. The fleet was kept in fighting trim by constant drill, and those in command were eager for a decisive action with the main fleet of the enemy. The outcome of such an action could not be foretold with any confidence, for the fleets were very evenly matched. Still, with the condition of hopeless stalemate existing in the absence of such an action, with the fear of a masterstroke on land by the resourceful enemy, the men of fighting blood were ready to risk the supreme test. The enemy, however, was carefully holding his main fleet within the Mediterranean. Was there any way to draw him out? The British and American admirals speculated much concerning his disposition to engage in a major action if conditions should appear favorable. What apparent advantages, they wondered, would suffice to make him risk a meeting with the Allied force? Evans from time to time went into the main transmitting station on shore to test the apparatus, and on these occasions, after making certain adjustments, would sit down with his hand on the key and send out a few seemingly meaningless dots and dashes, whereupon Kendrick at Gibraltar would copy down a message and pass it on to Herringham in Constantinople. Also from time to time, Evans, testing the receiver on the flagship, would at certain times of day write things down on a slip of paper in a leisurely manner, only five or six words a minute. After he had done this, he was apt to have a talk with Barton. On one of his visits to the transmitting station, he sent a request for information on the moot question. How did the enemy look on the possibility of an encounter with the Allied fleet? 
Would a slight apparent advantage in weather conditions suffice to draw him out, or must the Turkish admiral see a chance of cutting off a small detachment of Allied ships before leaving his base? A few days later, after Evans had talked with Barton, Barton talked with Fraser, chief of staff, and Fraser talked with Admiral Johnson. It seemed, so Fraser told the Admiral, that Barton had secured advices through secret channels that the enemy's attitude toward a possible naval action was decidedly conservative. If he had reason to suppose he could catch the Allied fleet unprepared, with weather conditions which would put the advantage of visibility on his side, he would risk action. Otherwise, he would hold his fleet behind the defenses of Gibraltar until he could catch a detachment of the Allied fleet far enough from support to warrant the hope of cutting it off and destroying it. Each month, at the date set in the key to Bella's codebook for the change of code, the intelligence officers of the enemy noted with satisfaction that a considerable part of the Allied radio traffic made sense in the new code. The rest of the traffic, they concluded, was probably nothing but dummy messages sent to disguise the times of increased volume, which would otherwise give evidence of naval activity, a well-recognized practice. The loss of the seven submarines was still a complete mystery, and as their commander had had no opportunity of reporting back to headquarters any of the messages they had heard concerning the mythical convoy, nothing had yet transpired to arouse any suspicion about the code. At Punta Delgada, the prisoners taken in the Great Roundup were carefully guarded on a ship of the fleet, never allowed on shore, and only seen by one or two trusted persons who took them their food. No one, save Admiral Johnson, the four officers who had stood on the bridge of the destroyer during the roundup, and two or three others at headquarters, knew how the submarines had been lured to their destruction. All others simply supposed they had first been located by radio compass and then more exactly by the hydrophones of the drifting chasers. And incidentally, both of these facts were true. One day late in February, Fraser was in the radio room of the flagship discussing with Evans the intricate system of radio communication by which her many diverse duties as the brain of the fleet could be performed in battle without mutual interference. The discussion was profitable to both, for though a chief of staff cannot afford to encumber his mind with an excess of technical details, Nevertheless, a clear understanding of the principles on which the directing mind coordinates the moving parts of a fleet is useful to all concerned. It was the way in which principles were applied rather than minute details with which this discussion dealt. Fraser desired to prolong the conversation to a greater length than was feasible in the radio room, so at last he said, Let's go ashore and talk over these things where there isn't so much going on. I can show you a quiet spot where nobody goes, answered Evans. Together they went ashore, and Evans led the way to the Borgia Garden. The old gardener opened the gate, and the two men entered and strolled off among the great tree ferns and other rare plants. Fraser was enchanted. He had never even heard of the place before. As they explored the deep grottoes, he exclaimed with delight at the vistas of rich and varied greenery. 
Finally, their walk led them to the old watchtower at the top of the garden, where they sat down and, looking out under the branches of the old cedar toward the ocean, continued to discuss communications and their relation to tactics. The little birds, accustomed to a feast whenever Evans came to the garden, now gathered round him and hopped on the ground, searching for the usual crumbs in vain. For today he was too much occupied to recall what was expected of him. Evans, questioning Fraser about major naval actions, drew from him an expression of his views on the most important elements of success. Among these, Fraser placed great emphasis on surprise. From this, the conversation went on to a discussion of the pros and cons of various possible fleet formations, in which Evans questioned and listened attentively. With a sharp stick, Fraser scratched on the ground diagrams illustrative of the formations he had in mind. A few leading questions made him warm to his theme and crystallize certain ideas on tactics hitherto latent in his mind. And as he disposed the great units of the mighty Allied fleet on the wide expanse of the sea, he kept reaching the point where his hands were tied by the limits of visibility. In his tactics, the units must be within sight of each other to be operated accurately as coordinated parts of an organized whole. This limitation restricted him, and he mentioned it specifically as obstructing certain expansions in tactical arrangement at which Evans had hinted. Suppose you could find a way to overcome that limitation and place the divisions of the fleet in their desired relative positions beyond the range of visibility. What use could you make of it? That is, what effective formations might you then adopt? asked Evans. Well, said Fraser, that might open lots of possibilities, but how could you ever place your divisions accurately at distances beyond the limits of vision? If you wanted to badly enough, you could place and maintain any unit in the fleet in any desired relation to any other by triangulation from radio compass bearings. That's an idea, said Fraser. but then your units would have to keep sending radio signals, and the enemy could locate them with their radio compasses, so that you'd lose all the advantages of surprise, and that would cut out most of what you could gain by that sort of trick. Only one unit need reveal its position by sending radio. The rest can take bearings on the signals of the key unit, and thus take station without ever making a sound. That's so, said Fraser. That opens some very interesting possibilities. He thought a while and scratched more diagrams on the ground, developing a few applications of this method. Evans discussed and questioned and led him on. The wax was now plastic in his hands. With acute suspense, he watched Fraser's mind work. Had he made the premises suggestive enough, and would the main idea strike home? A false step now might forever block the path to success. But what was this preposterous thing he was doing? A vista opened before his mind's eye, revealing vast armies stretching in unbroken line for hundreds of miles across the continent of Europe, while the whole world watched in agonized suspense, and the colossal industries of the Western Hemisphere working feverishly poured their great stream of food and supplies across the ocean, and there, on the placid sea before him, lay the great fleet, the keystone of an arch that spanned the world. 
and he, a gunner, was seeking to sway the mind of the chief of staff of that fleet. For a moment he felt weak and foolish in his impudence, but then again he saw the picture in a larger perspective, and all that was at stake spurred him on. The wax was indeed plastic in his hands, a leading question, a veiled hint, and he saw Fraser's mind working toward the scheme he had outlined to Mortimer in the autumn. As the plan evolved and took shape in the rough diagrams he was scratching on the ground, Fraser's enthusiasm grew till he was as keen as a schoolboy learning a new game. Then he brought himself back to earth and said, The trouble is, to get away with it, you'd have to have the enemy in just the right place, and then if the wind was wrong, you'd lose most of your advantage through the wrong kind of visibility. We got the enemy or part of him just about where we wanted him last month, said Evans. In the submarine roundup, said Fraser. that's so. There may still be possibilities in the same general technique, continued Evans. As for weather, Commander Jeremy can tell us a surprising amount about what the wind and visibility are going to be like for several days ahead. Did you ever talk with him about that? No, said Fraser. I had an idea that the weather profit business beyond 12 to 18 hours was still pretty much guesswork. And, anyway, be you ever so wise, you can't control the weather. No, but you can choose it, said Evans. You'd find it worthwhile to talk with Jeremy. He has really done some remarkable work, and I believe he could help you a good deal. Fraser thought a moment. But to get back to your placing battleship divisions by radio compass, he said at last, don't you think it would be too complicated and uncertain to rely on in all the stress of a naval action? Not if it's worth doing, answered Evans. It's no more complicated or difficult than director firing or torpedo work or several other things you rely on in a battle that have been perfected by intense effort and labor. It's just a matter of insisting that the gear shall be in working trim and then everlastingly drilling the men in the use of it. For a moment, Fraser sat in deep thought while the other watched him. Then, as his face bespoke the conclusion of his train of thought, Evans added, The one thing I fear as a menace to the success of such a plan is treachery. Any little leakage of information bearing on it might well prove fatal. I should be afraid to have an intimation of a plan go even to the general staff in Washington. Fraser looked at him hard and nodded thoughtfully. Yes, he said, a hint of it to the enemy would be fatal, but confidential messages to the general staff are well safeguarded. Would any such message be necessary? I hate to think how easy it would be for a radio operator of the wrong kind to tip someone off by means of a cipher worked into the traffic, and you can't know all about every operator. Frazier nodded. That's true, he said. It'll pay to keep the lid on good and tight if we try any game like this. But then, that's a big if. During the next few days, the ideas Fraser had arrived at during their talk recurred to him from time to time with increasing force. But with all his acumen, he never knew the power of suggestion whereby the strategic plan, which so fired his enthusiasm, had been laid before his mind's eye. 
At last, he discussed with some of the admirals in command of divisions of the fleet the question of training the personnel to place their divisions in long-range formations by means of radio compass triangulation and pointed out some of the tactical advantages that might be had by doing so. The admirals, for the most part, thought little of the idea. They were used to thinking of the radio compass as a useful adjunct to navigation in thick weather and as being possibly useful in finding enemy submarines. But to use it for fleet formations seemed ridiculous. Some thought it looked well on paper, but wouldn't work out in the practice. One or two simply didn't think. These officers, excellent men, well-trained in their profession, could hardly be blamed for shying at so radical an innovation. An eminent scientist has said anent the inflexibility of the mind in the latter half of its career that, considering what an immutable structure the nervous system becomes at maturity, the remarkable fact is that we can take in any new ideas after 50. The flexible mind at this age is a rarity. The original mind at any age is a rarity. Fraser sought Commander Jeremy and was surprised and impressed with the number of verified predictions of weather several days in advance and the regularity with which they were correctly made. The intricate system of measurement of temperature, humidity, wind direction, and velocity presented a truly wonderful picture of scientific development and the way all these were correlated with similar data from remote stations and the conclusions were reached was marvelous. Frazier refrained from mentioning these matters to Admiral Johnson himself until he had noted the reaction of several of the rear admirals to his tactical scheme as he proposed it, and until he had given serious thought to their comments. Finally, having enlisted a moderate degree of approval on the part of two of these men, he suggested what he had in mind to Admiral Johnson. The admiral, who valued Fraser for the efficiency he had already shown, listened attentively, but was disposed to shake his head at several features of the plan. It sounded to him too fantastic and impracticable. Nevertheless, he consented to discuss it at a conference with his rear admirals. The conference was called, and Fraser went into it with the conviction that his proposal was fraught with momentous possibilities. But as the discussion progressed, he found that with only halting and hesitant support from the two admirals whose backing he had previously won, even his buoyant enthusiasm was no match for the opposition of the majority. But, since not one convincing argument against the scheme was presented by anyone, he was, at the end of the conference, more convinced than ever of its essential soundness, and more determined to fight for its adoption. After the other admirals had dispersed, Fraser continued to discuss the matter with Admiral Johnson. You see, Fraser, said the admiral, you mustn't let your enthusiasm carry you away too far. The majority of the admirals were clearly opposed to your idea. Yes, answered Fraser, but was there one single valid reason given why it should not work? I don't know about that, answered the admiral, but it would be rash policy to adopt all of a sudden a new type of formation differing radically from that to which we are trained and which has been proved efficient, especially when a failure of this newfangled method with which you propose to correlate the divisions would result in disastrous confusion and loss of all-important concentration of force. 
If we could hope to engage the enemy under tolerably favorable conditions, answered Fraser, we should be justified in adhering to the present well-tried formations, but they know our strength and won't chance it. Unless we can draw them out by making them think conditions are favorable for them, they won't come out at all. And unless we have something up our sleeves better than they are prepared for, we can't afford to risk action under conditions which they deem favorable. If things drag on as they are now, what does it mean? Continued deadlock on the sea like the deadlock on land. At the present moment, the deadlock on land is in danger of breaking for the worse. The enemy have recently made a serious breach in our line by a new trick in chemical warfare of which we have not the secret. There were enough reserves available to close up the breach this time, but with such methods unknown to us, available to them, and with the marvelous generalship of Murad and his genius for making effective use of just that sort of thing, the outlook for the war is very ominous unless we can force their hand at sea. It's worth everything to bring things to a head in the most advantageous way. If the stake is worth it, we can, by adequate effort, develop this method and make it work. Surely the stake is worth it. The admiral sat for a while frowning and tapping his desk with his fingers. What assurance have you that this method will work, he asked at last. Are you well enough acquainted with the technical difficulties that may have to be overcome to guarantee its success? Technically, it is the same method that has worked on destroyers in finding and sinking submarines. I have not an intimate knowledge of the technical details myself, but the radio gunner Evans, who was responsible for its proper working on the first successful submarine hunt, knows more about it than any man in the Navy. He has assured me that it would be perfectly feasible to apply the same method on the more extensive scale required for the maneuvers we've been discussing. It's risky to touch too closely on grand strategy in talking with a gunner, remarked the admiral. I trust this man's discretion above that of most men of twice his rank, answered Fraser. I have found his advice on technical radio matters of the greatest value, and he has an unusual sense of the fitness of such things from the tactical point of view. I wish you would talk with him about this. He could answer your questions as to the technical difficulties better than I can. Admiral Johnson pondered the matter a while and then decided to summon the rear admirals again and let Fraser call in Evans to explain to them more fully what radio direction finding actually amounted to. It was an atmosphere well calculated to make the stoutest heart quail that confronted Evans when Fraser brought him into the august gathering of rear admirals, their patience already visibly tried by the resumption of an apparently futile discussion. Admiral Johnson explained to him that his testimony was desired on certain technical questions concerning the radio compass. Carefully avoiding any disclosure of the ultimate object in view, he endeavored to outline the sort of service that might be required of the apparatus and asked if it could be relied upon to perform this service accurately, regularly, and under a variety of adverse conditions. 
Evans, with difficulty, suppressed a smile as he listened to the Admiral's elaborate and guarded wording of the question he had come prepared to answer. He answered emphatically and unqualifiedly in the affirmative, and he did not stop there. He went on to say, Technically, the service you mention is no different from that which the radio compasses in cruisers, destroyers, chasers, and shore stations are performing daily. The apparatus would be used in the same way. It would simply be used for a different purpose. One of the admirals asked if he thought it was well enough understood to be safely relied on in an emergency. Certainly, answered Evans, it is as well understood as a gun, and that has been relied on in most of the emergencies in history. But isn't it the work of a highly trained specialist to keep it in proper working order and to use it accurately? There again, I can say, without hesitation, not the least bit more so than a gun. It takes less skill to calibrate a radio compass than to bore sight a gun, and it is far easier to use it accurately than to shoot straight with a gun, that is, with the accuracy required for practical results. If one quarter the effort that is spent boresighting guns and drilling gun crews were given to calibrating and inspecting radio compasses and training the men to use them quickly and accurately, and if the officers insisted on efficiency, the radio compass would do its job just as surely as the guns under a good gunnery officer. As for using the intelligence obtained with it, that is up to the officers that handle the fleet, and in that respect, the Navy is not apt to fail. Admiral Johnson was startled by the earnestness and assurance with which he warmed to the conclusion of his remarks. Some of those present felt that he was verging on effrontery and sought to snub him with expressions of doubt. Might I suggest, said Evans, turning to Admiral Johnson, that the best way to settle this question and find out if the radio compass will do what you want is to try it with the ships at sea in a test maneuver. One rear admiral, incensed by the gunner's evident contempt for the authority with which he had essayed to set him down and the unabashed appeal to the higher authority of experiment, exclaimed testily, it would only be a waste of time, fuel, and energy. Would it involve any more time, fuel, and energy than the practice cruises which are being made periodically at the present time? Asked Evans quietly. On these, we drill the men at battle stations, gunnery practice, and other things in which the fleet must be kept in constant training, said the rear admiral. That could all be done while the proposed trial maneuver is going on, without the slightest interference, said Evans. The men at battle stations and the other regular drills needn't even know that any other test is being made. In fact, it would be better they shouldn't. Another rear admiral, who had been inclined to favor the plan from the first, now nodded in approval and remarked, There's some merit in that idea. Admiral Johnson then spoke. I can see no reason why the question should not be put to the test of a trial maneuver of the fleet, such as has been suggested. It is worthwhile to experiment to that extent and see what can be done. He then requested Fraser to make plans for a maneuver which would give the proposed method of fleet coordination a fair test and to report to him the next day. Then, 
Turning to Evans, he thanked him for his testimony, and, forgetting that Evans had just put the thought into his head by his last remark, warned him to be extremely discreet and repeat nothing of what he had heard to anyone. Evans received the warning with due courtesy and deference, and then withdrew. It was arranged that in a week's time two battleship divisions should take station on opposite sides, east and west, of a designated rectangular area at sea. Then a division of cruisers with the commander-in-chief on board would steam into this area from the south at a point unknown to the battleship divisions and would continue on a roughly northerly course, the flagship in the lead and another ship at the rear, keeping a distance of just two miles between them, were to send radio signals to each other continuously. The battleship divisions, guided solely by their radio compasses, were to take station, each in a stated position relative to the cruiser force, far enough away to be well out of sight, and were to maintain these relative positions without sending any radio signals. Then, at a given signal from the flagship, they were to deploy toward her till visual contact should reveal whether or no the assigned relative positions had been accurately maintained. This was a fair test which should answer the question whether the maneuver Fraser had so earnestly advocated was feasible. The next few days, Evans spent going continuously from ship to ship, inspecting and testing the radio compasses in all that were to participate in the maneuver and satisfying himself that the operators were proficient in their use. The necessary testing of apparatus and quizzing of the men took all his time from morning till night, and as he sank into bed after the second day, dead tired, the feverish activity pursued him into his sleep. In his dreams, he was still restlessly whirling the coils in a search of the elusive bearing, never quite satisfactorily obtained, or trying over and over again to drive into a stupid operator's mind an intangible something which he couldn't crystallize in his own. Ill-refreshed by his sleep, he rose and plunged into the task anew, questioning operators searchingly, drilling them when necessary, explaining to them points on which they were not clear. Before the week was over, he was able to rest with the assurance that the men would not fail him in this crucial test. The ships put to sea, the two battleship divisions going first to their allotted places of waiting, where with the usual drills the minds of all were kept occupied, none but the communication officers being apprised of the nature of the tests to be made. Admiral Johnson, flying his flag on a scout cruiser, then led the cruiser force into the designated area, laying a course that would put the direction-finding procedure to a real test. The visibility was low, barely two miles could a battleship be seen through the low-lying haze. The stream of radio traffic between the leading scout and the cruiser at the rear end of the line was begun and duly maintained. For 30 miles, the column steamed northward after entering the designated area. Twice they changed course to render the task of the battleships more difficult. Then, at last, the signal was given for the battleships to deploy inward. 
When the forms of the battleships loomed up through the haze, both east and west, almost simultaneously, Admiral Johnson knew at once that they could not have been far from the positions assigned. And when their reports were all in and the laying out of the day's work on the plotting board revealed that each division had held its relative position to within half a mile throughout the maneuver, he knew that he had in truth a powerful weapon in his hand. Immediately after this convincing demonstration, Admiral Johnson showed his worth by vigorously sweeping aside all objections on the part of the more conservative admirals and insisting that the new method of tactical coordination should be developed to a high degree of perfection, and in this he relied largely on Fraser. With the increased hope of gaining an advantage through surprise, the admiral's eagerness for a decisive action increased, and he cudgeled his wits to think how this desired end could be attained. Fraser, himself able to assimilate at a single meal the three ideas which had developed in his conversation with Evans, knew better than to feed them to Admiral Johnson more than one at a time. He now met the Admiral's desire to draw out the enemy by suggesting various ways of presenting an outlook that would appear favorable to the enemy intelligence service. Frequent conferences followed between Fraser and Barton and consultations with Jeremy on the weather problem. Conferences also occurred between Barton and Evans, unknown even to Fraser. The fleet engaged in an increasing number of practice cruises at sea on which they worked out various problems of group maneuvering by means of radio compass triangulation. And yet all of the ship's companies, except those directly concerned, were kept busy at their own tasks and remained in complete ignorance of this new feature of the fleet's activity. As the month of March drew to a close, a subtle feeling diffused through the fleet that something of moment was in the air. In wardroom conversation, remarks were dropped that vaguely reflected this quickening of the spirit of impending adventure. Yet no one could trace this feeling to its source. Was it, after all, anything more than the magic influence of spring, which even to the worker within brick walls comes and permeates the core of his emotional being with a strange elation and a sense of universal expansion. Perhaps even in these semi-tropical islands, where there is little of the rotation of seasons as we know it in the north, the approach of April filled the men with a yearning that found its expression in this general sense that some great event was about to happen. End of chapter 10.